All right, guys. So we're back, and uh, today we have Dr. Bahar with us. She's a internal medicine attending physician, and <laughs> she's rolling her eyes right now. <laughs> so yeah, we've worked together in the past, and uh, we've been colleagues, and uh, we continue to be friends outside of work. And we're very glad to have you on today, Bauer. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. So, so nice to meet Tom. Yeah. Uh, thank you. And you as well. Thank you. The reason that I wanted you on here is because I think your perspective is very unique, very insightful, very deep. And uh, we just want to get to know you a little bit more. I'm curious about what would you say were a couple of really powerful influences? And powerful to me doesn't mean that the person had a particular station in life. It could be an experience. It could be a person. So when you think about some of the choices that you made that led you into medicine, Mm -hmm. um, what were some of those influences? I would say, you know, the biggest thing for me was like culture, family, tradition, and a sense of duty. You know, my family, they're refugees from Afghanistan, and they had to escape their country, and they came here in search of a better life. And that entire process was was very traumatic for them. And so ever since I can remember, I had this feeling that I owed it to them to be successful, to do whatever it took. And so that's like my earliest memory. One of the biggest influences in my life was my maternal grandfather. He was just like the patriarch of the family. He brought everyone here against all odds. And I spent a lot of time with him growing up. I remember when I was a kid, he used to asked me to arrange his medications into those Monday through Sunday, you know, little pill uh, boxes. And he used to say in Farsi, you know, or we speak Dari, he would say, you're my little doctor. Mm -hmm. He's like, you're going to be a doctor. Um, Or he'd tell like all our family and friends, oh, Bahar is going to be a doctor. I just never thought about doing anything else. It was as if he kind of determine my destiny. And so he was a big influence in my life. And then, like I said, just culture and that sense of duty. And the third would be, I think I've always personally struggled with something in my life as well, whether it be health-related, nothing serious, but, you know, dealing with some of my own health issues also, motivated me to keep going in this trajectory and to keep moving. So what initially started out was like the the pressures of family and the the sense of duty was further just like propagated by my desire to kind of heal myself in a sense Um, because I felt like, you know, there must be people who feel like me and maybe I can, I can help them and in the process, help myself. There's probably a lot more than that, and there's probably a lot deeper things than that, but those are the things that I can think of off the top of my head. It's really thoughtful and has so much kind of resonance around it. When when you talk about 
duty, does it feel more like an obligation to fulfill or does it feel like a calling? For a long time, I felt like it was an obligation. Mm-hmm. And as I grow, I feel like it it truly is a calling. I feel like the calling for me is might sound a little cheesy, but the calling for me is to be a healer. The obligation was to obtain a degree and to fulfill an expectation to my family so that every time I walk into a place, I mean, I went to a New Year's party with my parents and everyone would introduce me, oh, this is Bahar, she's a doctor. Oh, this is Bahar, she's a doctor. But I never introduced myself that way. I didn't want people to know that. I like to like start conversations with people and they feel my healing energy, whatever it may be, how in whichever way I can introduce it to them. I feel like it, it comes about in every interaction I have. So <clears throat> it was an obligation and now I'm trying to kind of change my path and my career to like center more around healing and not necessarily the traditional sense of what we consider Western medicine to be and how we treat people. So in a, in a way, I mean, I'm grateful to have had those expectations placed on me because it led me to where I, I am and where I'm headed, which is more in line with my moral compass and and what I feel like my true purpose is. Without throwing a romantic gesture on that, that is a really elegant and transformative aspect of the journey to step into that kind of all of that culture structure and that sense of pressure around performing and duty. But as talk about the, the courage side of the journey to now extract who you are in it and how you become an influence of it rather than just a passenger. Talk a little bit. Um, I'm really touched, and I think this is a really rich part of the conversation. I um, deeply believe that as a global society, and particularly in this contemporary time we live, that we're entering into a time of deep healing. Could you talk a little bit around the healing that's going on for you and how you see yourself as a healer both? May I ask you that? <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. You know, I actually recently asked myself the same question not mm. maybe not as eloquently as you asked me but I asked myself how did I get here <laughs> how did I get to be this person and to have these thoughts that I'm having because every single day I wake up and I feel like I'm drastically different than the day before because my mind is like moving and it's growing and it's wanting to be not necessarily better but to like just transcend and every day feels like a transcendence and I was like how did I get to be at this place in my life where I don't want to say that I'm uncomfortable 
but maybe that is like the right word. Every day I feel uncomfortable to stay still um, in terms of growth. And I think the reason why I feel that way is because I feel like a great change is coming and a great change is happening in my life. Um, and it's the product of everything that has ever happened in my life from the time that I was conceived. And I think family, friends, my career, every experience that I've had has led me to this point. And I'm incredibly grateful for all the experiences. And it's these people that you open yourself up and you have conversations that end up introducing you to new things and new things and new things. And I recently really was influenced by Gabor Mate, um, who is a physician, and he recently published The Myth of Normal. And it was coming up a lot in my news feed, on social media. And I think it was, you know, I was, I was researching different therapies to help people because I, I wasn't feeling satisfied with how, I, how I'm currently practicing medicine. And I think that in a lot of ways, Western medicine helps a lot, but it leaves you incredibly dissatisfied because you're seeing a lot of patients and you're putting a Band-Aid on problems and you never have enough time in the day to really sit and talk to people. And I think I call myself an empath, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I feel like when I look into my patients' eyes, they don't care that I like fix their kidneys or they don't care that I scheduled them for a surgery and called the orthopedic surgeon. They care more that I just spent like 10 minutes just talking to them. Mm-hmm. And I realized that, yeah, mm-hmm. like there is like illness in the body, but I think that it all starts in the mind. And it's that mind-body connection and he you know, Gabor Mate really uh, touches on that in his book. And his book really did change my life because it was all the things that I had been feeling but put into really great words. And so, like, some of these relationships and friendships and um, that I've cultivated over the years led me to just seeking knowledge in these areas. And I realized that a lot of my own pain came from my childhood experiences. And I had a great upbringing. I mean, I have very, very loving parents. It was hard for me to talk about trauma and childhood without a feeling that I was offending them in some way or bringing their parenting skills into question. But I had to do it. I had to look deep and say, okay, this was, these are the things that I experienced as a child, not because my parents intended for me to feel that way, but that was how I processed what was happening. So it's nobody's fault. It's just I processed these experiences in these ways, and it made me the person that I am. And I realized that if we don't address these things that kind of just sit in your gut and just kind of fester over time, that it actually can translate into illness in the body, which is also a big portion of 
what's covered in this book about how trauma can actually develop into actual physical illness and pathological processes. So some now I look at like my patients in the hospital and I look at they have a laundry list of problems, you know, and a laundry list of medications. And I walk in and all I can think to myself now is wow, this person I think experienced a lot of trauma in their life. And this trauma was never addressed and they still live with that trauma. And I think that we're we're missing we're missing something really big here and just just in western medicine where we've separated the mind from the body and we take care of the body and then we just ignore the mind we're like okay they're on lexapro it's just another medication um but there's a real problem here there's a real problem here and it's i feel like a lot of it can be pre- prevented but we've just become such a medication focused society and people love their pills you know it's hard to do the work and do the therapy and address the traumas and to exercise and to change the way you eat to change your habits those things are hard so you and i have previously talked about uh gabor mate's work and um in preparation for you coming here, I started to read When the Body Says No. Mm-hmm. And in the book, he essentially describes that traumas and emotional repression propagate physical disease. Mm-hmm. Um, various cancers, for example, with breast cancer, there's a, cor- there's a correlation with the repression of anger specifically. And you see that in twin-twin studies too. Um, irritable bowel syndrome, inflammatory bowel uh, conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, various autoimmune disorders. So if this central thesis is correct, that your emotional state, your psychological state, your inner workings are a major driver of your physical disease, I think that is a paradigm shift in the way that we treat our patients. Because when you and I get a patient with this understanding, you see somebody that's probably been traumatized. And yet, are we even acknowledging the psychological component in any meaningful way? Are we even acknowledging them as basic human beings sometimes? Sometimes we treat them as a disease process. So how is uh, the you know appendicitis in room 12 doing? They don't even have a name sometimes to us. So this human being is coming in for connection, for healing, and they are receiving the opposite is that traumatizing them even further that now there's really no hope? You can go to your doctor and they will treat you the exact same way. So to me, it brings up two questions of, are we actually treating our patients in a meaningful way? Question two, what is the toll that it is taking on us as healers when we treat ourselves in this way? Oh, you've worked for 36 hours in a row and you're tired? Too bad. You're not supposed to be tired. You're not allowed to be tired. You're fatigued. You've worked for 12 days in a row. So what? You're not even a human being. You're a machine. So we fundamentally, I don't think, understand health at all. I mean, you're asking me a question, but I think you, you, you hit the nail on the head. I don't think we understand health fundamentally at all either. And it's, 
I experience moral conflicts every single day when I work, and it's actually exhausting for me. Wow. Because all I can see now when I see patients is I feel like all of this could have been prevented. Hmm. Why are people getting sicker? Yes. There's something wrong here. It doesn't sit right with me. And I feel like in the acute care setting, when you're treating someone with a stroke or a heart attack or a bad pneumonia, pancreatitis, and they're in the hospital for a day or two and then they're out, or whatever, you need, they need surgery. You know, the acute care setting, which is where I'm at right now, makes sense to me. It's really when these people go out into the community. It's, it's the quality of care they receive when they're out in the community. Are they able to get their medications? Are they getting mental health services? Are they, uh, is their insurance covering these, these things? You know, recently I went to Iceland, and I swear it's like everywhere, but maybe America. Everyone in Iceland has health insurance. They have great services for, for uh, you know, maternity and, and baby. And I was talking to my taxi driver, and he's like, what's health insurance? I was like, oh, it's like that thing you need, you know? And he's like, yeah, um, I, I still don't, I don't understand. So you're saying... People can't see doctors there. And I'm like, it, to everyone else, it's a little bit, it's a bit crazy, right? But uh, yeah, it's it's when people go out into the community, that's where like their chronic conditions are being managed. And I think that is where the work needs to be done, is in managing chronic conditions and why why they occur. What's, a, what's the root cause? Why is there inflammation? Whenever I travel to Europe, I am always just perplexed as to how happy people are in most European cities and how the culture is so different. People dine together. They spend hours dining together outside. They're with their families. They're with their friends. Their priorities are their community. And our priorities in America are work, status, wealth, power. And I think we're a fundamentally stressed out society. It brings into mind the French paradox. You know, the French drink wine and they smoke and they eat food high in saturated fat and yet they're healthier than we are here in the, in the U.S. Well, why is that? On my last trip, I went to um, Italy. Um, what I found fascinating was that people didn't sit and consume their breakfast in silos. They all stood at the barista counter and they actually spoke to the baristas. They spoke to each others. They knew, like the locals would just walk by and everybody knew each other. They had a sense of community. Here, you, you go to a Starbucks, everybody's on their laptop with their headphones on in their own little silos. Nobody communicates. And so we're all just so fragmented. And I wonder how much this stress, this social stress plays a role in terms of manifesting disease that people feel so disconnected from each other that in some way the body then manifests that into some kind of pathology yeah i mean the thing is like i don't think any europeans are without stress you know but it's a different kind of stress here we place so much emphasis on wealth 
I got to be really, really, really rich. And then you have the really, really, really poor. It's, it's just a different kind of, of stress. And I think the stress of loneliness is far more detrimental than the stress of, you know, okay, well, I might not have as much money, but I have a community. I have friends. I can go to the local cafe. I know people there. I'm going to have my cigarette, but I'm going to laugh and I'm going to tell jokes and I'm going to enjoy. I'm going to have a little fiesta or a siesta. Not a fiesta, <laughs> a little siesta, a little break. So I might be having a cigarette, but at least I'm at least I'm around people and people like me and I don't feel alone and I don't have to go hustle right now. I don't know. I just I think different. It's a different kind of stress, but I think the stress that we have here to always obtain more is far more detrimental health wise. Absolutely. I, I think you just touched on something that's <clears throat> so deep and uh, so rich and so relevant. If you take that word stress, and it's really interesting because everyone can run with it. But I think both of you, um, Bahar, just what you just said, it, it's very fascinating how stress can be a very powerful, almost kind of creative force in our lives. Or it can be a force that is so destructive. And I was just making a note here as both of you are speaking, stress that creates disconnection from meaning, from belonging, mm -hmm. from things that we deeply value has a real toxic effect on us physically, emotionally, spiritually. Um, and we look at other societies or we look at other individuals let's just say individuals that have really healthy doses of stress in their life, but that stress is filled with meaning, sense of connection, aligned with their values. So it's actually a stress that's stimulating. You both, Bahar, you made a statement earlier. I want to hear a little bit about moral conflict because I think standing inside that tension is probably a really precious space. It's interesting, something popped up for me in the way we think that life is so precious, but yet we don't treat it as precious. We treat it as a commodity. We, um, everything that you, the two of you are just saying. And so the question is, what makes it precious? What do you think makes life precious? We act like it's precious. We talk about how precious it is, but we don't treat it like it's precious. What do you think? That's what makes life precious? Because I don't think it's a great philosophical debate. I think it is something that has a simple resonance in it. What What is it for you when you think about the preciousness of life? What comes up? For me, I think, the first thought that comes into mind is uh, love. Mm. I think um, love is the answer to so many problems. Problems that we think that we can't even get out of, whether it's self-love, love for somebody else. And sometimes that love is manifested as understanding. You might have conflict with somebody, but I can understand your position. I might disagree with mm -hmm. you, but I can understand it. And I can forgive you. And I can still love you through it question of you know what makes life precious i think love for me is what makes life uh, precious 
Bahar. Yeah, honestly, um, love came up for me as well uh, as the first thing. And I agree, like, there are a lot of components to love. And I think that love in the form of, of connections with people, you know, I, I think that we need, we need human connection. It's, it's, how we, it's how we gauge ourselves in relation to, to the community, to our, you know, um, to the world. I think these connections that we have with people and ultimately how they help that connection with ourself, I, I think that's what makes life precious. It's the growth that comes from those connections mm-hmm. and the love that you cultivate. And I've realized that it's not easy to do that. It takes conscious effort Mm -hmm. to build true love in relationships. You know, true love between a mother and a daughter, between sisters, between a father and a daughter, between cousins, between all relatives, between friends, between lovers, it requires deep introspection, true recognition of self. And the moment that you are able to be so completely honest and so naked, getting to that point in life and feeling that that love and connection with yourself and with others, I think that's, that's what makes this life precious. What about for you, Tom? As I was listening to the two of you, I I was asking myself that question as I was posing the question as well. And I would echo, um, I'm not about gratuitous agreement, but I would say that it really is love. And it's not the cliche romantic love, but it's that deep, courageous love. Right to stand in compassion for myself so that I can stand in compassion out in the world. And so I love that deep, rich philosophical truth. We can't give back what we can't give to ourselves. And so I do think that as we keep tugging at the challenge of love, and we never get lazy about it. And I love what you said, Bahar. I mean, it really is a daily practice. Like anything that we value in life becomes a daily practice. That love just becomes this expansive, redemptive presence. And so, yeah, I think that's what makes it really precious. I would like to tie that concept into our profession a little bit. The system is set up in a way that um, it discourages you from developing a connection with your patients. So whereas in the past, a patient might have a certain ailment, they would go see their primary care physician, and there was a certain placebo effect there of I'm going to go see my doctor and he or she is going to be in a white coat and this is going to be the time that I'm going to be able to share my ailments with another human being who is supposedly wiser or has some kind of knowledge base that I don't, and I'm coming here into this person's temple to seek their help. And just the 
physical act of doing that is healing in a certain way. Maybe the physician did nothing for you, but maybe just simply you being in that temple, so to speak, communicating what you're feeling is healing. There's a placebo effect there. Now, compare that to modern medicine where as a primary care physician, you only have 15 or 20 minutes per patient and you show up to work and like your entire day is just lined up patient to patient. Or you, uh, uh, internal medicine doctor, you might have a census of 15, 20 patients and you just feel like you're getting just slammed the whole time. And you don't have the time to sit down with these human beings and to say, tell me about your past. What have you been through? Who are you? Let's get to know you a little bit. And that I really struggle with. In my capacity as a healer, I'm supposed to heal. I don't feel like I have the time or the space to do that. So I would like to hear your thoughts on that, Bahar. There really just isn't enough time in the day. And it leaves much to be desired for the patient and for myself, which I I think that when you're young and you're ready to go to med school, you're like, oh, I can't wait to save lives and I'm going to help people. And it's a, it's a big surprise when you get to the point where you're, you have a list of 20 very sick patients and you're required to document, but you also need to sleep and you need to eat and you need to take care of yourself and you need to take care of them. And, and then you got to get all the paperwork done and it leaves a very little time to create that experience for people. It makes me feel like, did I work this hard to feel this way? Mm-hmm. But And there's just not enough time to change that feeling. And it hurts. I feel like I'm failing them. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people will tell me, you know, just, it is what it is, like... I don't know how long my soul can sustain doing that kind of work. Wow. It's it's actually exhausting for me. You know, the sentiment that you describe, I think, is a lot more common than we're led to believe. Mm-hmm. The I would say the majority of the people that I speak to feel that way. They've, and what I'm hearing is a component of burnout. Most of us are probably burned out. For me, when I was going through medical school and through my residency, I know that they were doing a lot. And when I say they, I mean just the institution of of medicine um, to to reduce duty hours and to reduce physician burnout by lessening hours and not requiring you know a twenty four hour call. Um, but I think I I don't think that the hours are the problem. Yeah. I think the problem is that we're doing work that is unfulfilling. Mm-hmm. We're not truly f- really helping and fixing people in the way that they need fixing. We mm-hmm. we fix the numbers, we fix you know, we fix the CBC, we fix the CMP, you know, we fix the electrolytes and you give them some blood or whatever. You fix the numbers and then you ship them out cuz they're stable. But if you don't connect with the patient, there's no meaning. 
there's no true meaning. You're like, what did I actually do for them? What did I get out of that? You just exposed the earlier comment. You just elegantly, courageously, compassionately exposed that earlier comment about toxic stress versus loving stress and the disconnect from value and the disconnect from meaning. Toxic stress. Just one comment. I think some of the best moments in my short thus far short career have been with patients who actually have passed away on my watch, but that I actually connected with prior to them passing away. We had maybe a conversation or we connected in, in some way. I actually, I, and I, you know, some people probably don't do this, but I've cried with my patients. I just will sit at, sit on the bed and whatever they tell me makes me cry. (laughs) You know, it just, that is my feeling. That is my emotion. And we, then we cry together and, and some of, and most of them make it out. And the ones that don't, those are, those are really meaningful for me because I was with them in these really difficult last moments of their life. Wow. So I think, I think the meaning comes from the connection. You know, um, maybe this would be a good time to kind of talk about the first time that we met. You were having a discussion with a patient who was who was in really bad shape. Yeah. And you basically told him that he was he was gonna have a challenging road ahead based on how he was looking. Yeah. It was a very difficult conversation. Without getting into too much detail, obviously. At that time, I was uh, working in the intensive care unit during the peak of COVID, and we got a call to see a, a patient on the floor who might have to be transferred to um, the the ICU. I went to go see him on the floor, and he was on a lot of supplemental oxygen. You know, when COVID first hit, we were putting everybody on a ventilator. We realized that didn't work, and so then we realized uh, it's better to keep them away from the ventilator if it can be avoided. So it's a last-ditch rescue attempt. And I was trying to explain to him that my goal is to keep you off of the ventilator as long as I can. I communicated that with him and his wife and his wife was very, very scared. And he was very scared too. I just built a connection with them and eventually decided just to bring him down to um, the unit just to watch him there. And I became really close with his wife. Do you you recall her? I remember her, yeah. yeah. And such a sweet couple, such a sweet family. I was determined to keep this guy alive. I told his wife, you know, he's going to be fine. He's doing better. We're going to do all the things that we can. We're going to give him all the drugs that we can. We're going to put him on his belly. He's, he's going to be prone, even though he's not on a ventilator. We're going to try to just get him stronger. And so every day he was getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And then one day he just crashes. He goes on a ventilator and dies a few days later. And I was so heartbroken. But when I first encountered him and when I first met you, I was totally like disconnected from the humanity of it, of what it was like for this patient, of what it was like for his family, what it was like for you. And I was just like in there, boom, boom, boom. You know, these are the facts. This is what it is. And let's just move on. 
So I don't know, but that was the start of our relationship, something, I don't know, like a very kind of deep, emotionally challenging clinical experience. And then we met again later on when we were doing a bronchoscopy together. Yeah, that was, that whole experience was a very difficult time. I think a lot of us felt like we needed to disconnect. Otherwise, it was just too hard to experience all of the death during the pandemic. It took a long time for me to come back and find my feelings again. Hmm. So many people have died in front of me that I just had to disconnect. And it affected all of my relationships with my family, um, romantic relationships. How are you different today than you were then? And I don't look at it as how are you better? How are you different? Good. How are you different? Bad. I don't look at it that polarized, but what, how do you, what's different for you? How do you feel differently? How do you think differently? What are you aware of? Um, it's, uh, I think it's an ongoing process. I can't really say, you know, this is how I was and this is how I am now. Right, right. I think, I think I recognized that I had emotionally shut down. Mm-hmm. And I was so afraid to address the emotions because I felt like they would overcome me. So I suppressed them for a very long time and it had negative repercussions just on my soul, suppressing them. And I think recognition of those emotions and making peace with them and understanding that they are a part of life and allowing them to come to the forefront but not succumbing to them has made me just resilient yet still soft i don't like to use the word soft but i um you can be you can be with feeling and still be resilient and i think that's what i didn't realize i thought to feel was weakness Mm -hmm. But I don't feel that way anymore. I think, I think feeling all your feelings, <laughs> you know, they say I'm in my feelings. Mm. Um, I think it's a, it's a sign of strength. When you say that, felt that it was a weakness to feel, where do you think that came from? I don't think it came from any one particular experience. I, I guess I just, well, I, I mean, it does come from particular experiences that just add up over time. And it, it 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 comes from my personal life as well, um, not just from my from my work life. I've had experiences in my personal life with 
friends and family and relationships in which anytime I felt something, I, a lot of the times it was associated with pain after. Mm. There were times in my life where that pain that I felt after I had some deep feelings for even like lost friendships, um, I didn't like the feeling of that pain. And I, I feel like it, that pain created impediments in my life and it held me back from things that I wanted to do. So then I associated feelings with pain and then subsequently with failure. I don't, I think it just comes from so many life experiences. Has your perspective on that since changed? Specifically feelings leading to pain, leading to failure? I think that for a long time, I had people in my life who disappointed me a lot. So I, I didn't, I tried not to allow people and relationships to, to dictate how much I would open up or how much to feel. I just felt like, you know, I have to be strong and I have to figure everything out on my own. But what ends up happening is when you finally open yourself up a bit, people come into your life and they nurture those feelings. They change the whole experience for you all together. So you don't associate the feelings anymore with pain. You change the narrative completely. You, you associate the feelings with joy. Hmm. And it takes practice because that person or whoever, and I'm talking about a specific person in my life, when you have those feelings and they nurture them and they show up for you over and over again and they're there for you in the ways that other times someone wasn't there for you or people weren't there for you or something disappointed you, then you're starting to build new connections in the mind as well. So you're not constantly afraid that this is going to fail. You start to think, wow, this is going to work. And now I feel like I'm talking about something specific. <laughs> well, you know, um, one of the things that I really admire about you is your courage. And I think of of the people that I know, I think I would consider you to be one of the most courageous because you can identify a problem and rather than letting it dictate your life, you just go through the darkness and until you find your path. And I feel like in the last year or so, you've really had this blossom of growth, but it's, but it's required you coming face to face um, with the demons, so to speak. But what I find inspiring about you, and one of the reasons that I wanted to have you here was uh, because I think, you know, for example, right now, you self-identify as a healer, but you don't feel like your day job necessarily provides for that. So what has been your solution to that? First to heal myself. Hmm. Wow. And heal the relationships that I have because that also helps in healing myself. And 
You know, I think so much of the time we want to go out and we want to heal the world. But it starts with ourselves, ourselves and our families, our friends, our immediate people. I was looking outside, but things happened in my life where I was like, hey, you actually need to look in. And so I think like the greatest work I'm doing right now is for me. Because I don't think... I can be successful in in what I want to do, like the work that I'm doing on myself. Ultimately, I want to expand that. But I have to be in a state of mind that will allow me to broaden the ideas that I have and how I'm healing myself. But in the broader sense, you know, I, I appreciate Western medicine and I think that it's necessary but I also think that there is another component that's necessary that we're ignoring, which is to consider all of the factors that are involved in a person's health, their relationships, their environment, their exposures, their stressors. And, um, you know, I'm guilty of it myself whenever I'm admitting a patient for a heart attack. Sometimes I forget to ask about social history. What's your community like? Do you have a support system? I think my future is is there and taking everything into account. And this uh, concept of first to heal myself, I find that to be very moving. You've captured on multiple times this evening, I think, Particularly in the West, we have a tendency to identify around the technicalities of our role, you know, the academic qualifications around it, the formality of it. But when, but the way you talk is you've dropped down and rather than be defined by a construct, you've given it a new construct. So you as a healer isn't a title. It's a state of being. It's a presence that you bring into it. Right. And one of the things, Bahar, that you, and I agree with uh, Kiev's comment, I actually wrote this down here, uh, you really exhibit a lot of courage. And for me, um, it's a thing I look for in, in my work when I'm working with groups of individuals or organizations or just an individual, how courageous are they? to actually authentically grab hold of what's true for them. I mean, that is a really courageous act. And it's clear to me that you really are on that journey. And I think that, I know for me, like when I think about the technical aspects of what I do, whether I describe it as behavioral science, industrial psychology, whatever, I go, no, I'm here to help remove the obstacles as people go on their life journey. I think of it as healing as well, rather than all the technical constructs of it. I love the way that you talk about the reframing, the giving it a new context that allows you to have ownership, deep personal ownership around whatever's going on. It's probably one of the biggest breakthroughs and understanding the healing process, healing trauma, 
Uh, a lot of research was done around individuals that survived the concentration camps. And the ones that came out and weren't permanently psychologically scarred had gone in and reframed it in such a way that it gave them a sense of ownership of their own lives that couldn't be taken away from them. And I hear that in you. I hear that reframing that context setting. And you used this term earlier around moral conflict, moral dilemma. And I love it because I feel like you truly are willing to stand in that at any given moment. Could you talk a little bit about what that means to you when you are faced with moral conflict? Because I really do believe to live a precious, a courageous, a meaningful, a robust life, we're always going to stand in this moral dilemma. What does that mean for you? That's a big question. Um, moral moral conflict, moral dilemma. Yeah, and I don't yes. mean to make it weighty or overly philosophical because I think we're faced with it constantly. You know, sometimes it's big and other times it's small. I think it comes back to a system that doesn't it's a system that doesn't allow for any any time or space to do anything other than what is in the protocol mm -hmm. what is in the guidelines we do have we do have some room to practice medicine in a way that's kind of artistic, you know, we kind of create different concoctions of medications, but I think it's just not having the time to do what I feel is necessary because the, the type of work that it requires takes time and it, it can't just occur just in the hospital. It requires a lot of time outside of the hospital as well. So I just don't feel like I don't feel like I'm doing what the patient actually needs. I feel like I'm I'm following a guideline because there's evidence. You know, there's it's evidence-based medicine. And we're fixing the problem, the quote-unquote problem. But that's Simple. where that's the conflict for me is I just I don't feel like I'm I'm actually taking care of the underlying issue which is not renal failure mm -hmm. it's not mm -hmm. aortic mm -hmm. stenosis it's not mm -hmm. uh, you know arteriosclerosis it's inflammation and the inflammation is coming from somewhere right so right that's not addressed right we're just we're just addressing the tip of the iceberg so. there's a certain you know reality to medicine that i think once you become when you go into practice, it, it becomes real, you know. I mean, for example, um, you go through all this training. You spend, for me, it was 13 years of my life. And then you come out and you have, you know, a rather large amount of student debt. Some people come out with five hundred, six hundred thousand dollars $600,000 of student debt. And you feel like, you know, I'm not actually addressing the root cause of the problem. And every day just feels like a grind. And and I know many physicians who are just dis illusioned with the whole practice 
of medicine. And I think that's something that we all kind of like really struggle with. And I don't have a good answer for that, but a lot of people feel that way. So it just kind of wears at you, I feel like sometimes. Absolutely. I feel that. At the same time, though, Bahar, like I feel like um, you're on a journey to find a different path. You know, would you be willing to share kind of what that path has been like for you so far and kind of where you envision it going if you feel comfortable talking about that? Um, right now, or, un- or uncomfortable talking about it as well. <laughs> I think that's more appropriate. Yes. Um, <laughs> It's it's incredibly uncomfortable because I I am one of those ones with half a million in debt and I am not looking forward to the uh, starting the repayments on that. Yeah. I think it's really disconcerting to spend so many of your life so many years of your life pursuing this position and then being in that position and saying, "Oh my gosh, this does not feel good for me at all. I did all the right things in life. Why do I still feel this way? Why do I feel this way? Everyone's telling me you should be happy. Wow. You're so Mm. lucky. You're a doctor. I'm like, this is not luck. (laughs) This was hard work. (laughs) Um, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a very, not a little bit. It's very uncomfortable to be in that, in that position and not, feel satisfied with your work because it's so much of your life. And so it feels like you're there. There's a conflict there because you're like, do I leave this behind altogether? Or was this just a stepping stone for something far greater? Mm -hmm. And I think it's the latter for me that Mm -hmm. I'm realizing but I have so many ideas and I find it hard to know where to start. I know that I want to take my career into a more holistic path, um, a more natural path for healing. And I just don't really know exactly where to start. So that's that's been really uncomfortable for me. But I'd rather be uncomfortable and feel better about what I'm doing than to be in this moral conflict. <laughs> I am sincerely moved by what you just said because the vast majority of physicians that I know want to find a way to get out of medicine. That's just the reality of it. Whether it's getting into real estate or getting into ketamine clinics or getting into IV hydration and or Botox or something. Everybody's trying to find a way out. And I think that's a symptom of a larger problem. And what I find is most people don't have the awareness that you have or the courage to actually pursue it. So when somebody says, yeah, like I, I want to pursue something else, I typically tell them, well, what's holding you back? And the answer is yourself, really. It's just you haven't decided yet that that's what you want to do. But what I like about what you're saying is you can feel the discomfort, you can feel the fear, but you're going to do it anyway. And I think that's a very powerful message. And right now you're in the thick of it. And so I just think that's a really grounding force that I want people to kind of just feel from you. You can feel the fear, but do it anyway. 
I couldn't have said it better. I, that's exactly how I feel. And, you know, my little sister wants to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. So feeling how I feel now, it's a bit of a, it's been a bit of a challenge for me to watch her study for the MCAT because I know what she's in for. And she's very similar to me. I mean, she's into into natural medicine, and but she feels like she won't have any influence unless she's an MD. Hmm. She's like, people won't trust me if I'm not an MD. But now she's going to go into this entire curriculum to learn pharmacology <laughs> to ultimately not want to prescribe medications. So I'm like... Why go through that? Why is it that? And I had the same mindset. I was like, you know, no one's going to trust me unless I'm an MD. It's not just in my head. I had one of my girlfriends call me the other night. She's like, hey, you know, I was going to call so-and-so, but, you know, you're an MD. I just trust you more. (laughs) And I was like, you know, it's just a harsh reality. People like... MD you have more influence that's why I think we have to be so careful what we say people take our word very seriously so now my little sister is going to go through this (laughs) that's what she wants to do and it I don't want to discourage her because it's her journey but I'm like why she's so brilliant why would people not trust her if, let's say, she decided to be a naturopathic doctor, you know? It's funny because if you ask most physicians, like if you were to bring like a um, undergraduate student and present that to like a room full of physicians, they would try to dissuade the young person from going into the medical field. I, I remember the first time that I was in a room full of doctors and um the operating room. I was, you know, 22, um, and, um, or 20. And, uh, they were like, yeah, so you want to be a doctor? And I'm like, yeah. And everybody said, don't do it. Do not do it. And there's just a certain reality to it. I mean, I don't want to, I am very grateful for what I do. I absolutely love what I do. I'm just saying that there's a reality to it as well. That is unspoken. And I can only imagine what it's like because your perspective is a little bit different from mine because I'm a man and you're a woman. I'd be really curious to hear what it is like or what it has been like for you being a woman in medicine and this male-dominated, you know, a kind of aggressive culture, abrasive, aggressive, confrontational culture. You know, I think I... Um, I always feel... I always feel like there's something there, but I try to ignore it. When it comes to how everyone interacts with me as a relatively younger female physician, it it poses its own unique challenges, which we've discussed before. If you pay attention, and sometimes even you don't need to be paying attention, there is a difference in the treatment of female physicians many times my patients have called me nurse 
walking into a room, which is a compliment because nursing is a wonderful profession and that is not uh, to downplay uh, the nursing profession. But it is just assumed that if you are a woman, you're a nurse. I've had um, male residents. I had a first-year intern who I went to go see a patient with, and I'm three years his senior, obviously, as an attending at this point. And the patient talked to him as if he was my superior. And he is a very smart young man and he's you know very intelligent but it's it's just this assumption that i'm either inferior in the hierarchy of physicians or that i am a nurse or that i am not in a position of power essentially and ultimately the power is the patience you know i'm not sitting here trying to say i'm almighty all powerful it's just the position that I'm in was earned. And it is frequently downplayed by not only my own colleagues, male and female. A lot of the times by females. I see female physicians treated not as kindly as male physicians are treated. It's it's happened so often that I can't help but to notice a trend. And I try not to bring so much attention to it because I feel like if I do, then I'm manifesting that energy. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to do that. But it's just something that I've noticed. And it poses an additional challenge when you're not taken seriously in a, in a job that's already difficult, that has so many pressures. So I... Does that answer your question? Uh, yeah, and thank you for sharing that. I mean, I think that's an important perspective that men and women should hear of what it's like for you being in that role. And what I find interesting is that the comment that women can treat women poorly as well. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? I've yet to fully understand it myself. I'm not. Sh- I'm not sure exactly why it happens. I. I don't, and I don't necessarily know where it comes from, but I do feel that there is there is a culture of women having a tendency to be harder on other women. Mm-hmm. I do think that there is something in there. Maybe it's because we see ourselves in others. Maybe. We're being self-critical, thus criticizing our fellow women. Um, I don't know where it comes from. All I know is that I've experienced it and I'm trying to understand it. Wow. And and you feel like the men don't take you as seriously as your male counterparts. Is that correct as well? Not all, but that definitely can happen. That must be a really challenging set of experiences to come into a workplace environment where you've spent so many years getting to this position and then to be treated that way by both genders for different reasons. It is. And I've spoken to female physicians who have been 
practicing for 20 years and they've told me about their experiences and how they still, despite being in the field for so long, experience experience that, that difference in, in how they are treated versus their male counterparts. Wow. It's just an, you have to jump through more hoops Jeez. to prove yourself time and time again. But we've just accepted it, and we do it. You know, this is not the first time that I'm hearing this. I've had older female colleagues tell me in different circumstances, you, meaning me, wouldn't be treated this way by the nursing staff because you're a man. So they have a certain degree of like respect for you. And then in other circumstances, they would say, well, the male surgeons wouldn't treat you in a certain way, the way that they treat us, because, well, you're a man. And I can, I mean, that must be really difficult to feel like you get it from all sides. So, but I mean, I think it's good that we're just bringing it to our collective consciousness so that we're aware that this is going on. And maybe we can just simply that awareness can modify that. What are you thinking about all this, Tom? One of the things that is very unique to the human condition is that not for all, uh, if we've been the injured loves to become the injurer. Hmm. Um, and usually if you can peel back and look into the experience of somebody that abuses or injures and it doesn't make sense, like a woman injuring another woman or a person of color injuring another person of color when we've been a product of bias and injury in society, one of the less healthy and more toxic ways that we do that is we re-injure another person. So I think it is, uh, you know, there is a pattern around that. I think there's a thesis that runs through a lot of this, uh, both what Bahar is talking about as a female physician, I think uh, starting to address the transactional aspect of medicine that doesn't serve either the healing process and certainly doesn't serve the profession is that I, I loved when Bahar, when you raised the the moral conflict or the, I, I love to use the term dilemma because I think we're faced with really small dilemmas and big dilemmas at times and in those moments, and I've got a few years on both of you, but and I'm certainly not going to pull the age card on this because I feel like I'm become more impressed with what I don't know than what I do know. But I do think that in all of these moments, here's the gift we're faced with. And this to me is what makes life precious, is that we get to make a decision. We get to make a choice. So one of the things that I know that I do is that I won't allow a system to define how I'm going to show up and be. I don't need to break rules. I don't need to break rev regulations. I don't need to be super rebellious. But I'm going, when I walk in a room, I'm, I'm making a very conscious decision in how I'm going to show up. No one's going to tell me how to show up. No one's going to tell me what I can't do. I'll make sure I check these four boxes. 
I'm going to create an experience there in, I don't care whether it's five minutes, 15 minutes, or 20 minutes in such a way that it will be so different for that person and will have an impact on them. Even if it's one small thing, I do have that control. And so I, I think what we're being faced with, because I think we could come up with a whole list of topics right now. You know, there's all of this work going on in DEI with diversity and inclusion and equity, you know, and it's not going to be a, a more education that's going to break through. It's going to be people starting to do things differently. And how are we going to start to break through the transactional side of medicine is that the new physicians coming out are going to make a conscious decision to start doing things through a sense of meaning rather than just a role. And I think, Bahar, you know, for instance, you describe yourself as a healer. And I think that that is a mantle that isn't just a romantic notion to you, but it's something that you carry so deep within the construct of who you are. I mean, it's it probably even has a soul language for you. Mm -hmm. It has a calling around it. How are you going to practice in such a way that allows you to be an agent of change? One of the things that I know is a, is a decision and a contract and is also a calling for me is I came up with the term, somebody said, if you had one adjective to describe yourself, Tom, what would it be? And I would say, I'm a disruptor. And I think that healers, think about, think about chronic, chronic health issues. They're a pattern. What are we trying to do? We're trying to break the pattern, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Does that resonate with both of you? Absolutely. We're trying to break the pattern. And I think that's what our work is about, yes. is to break the pattern. Start to shift the pattern. Wow. I remember I was working on a project. It was in an MBA team, and they were in the toilet. And I remember... Um, the work was really complex and it was really layered and it was really political. One of the physician groups that I was working with, he's Pat, he was a passionate basketball fan. And, you know, he was always asking me about the work. And I said, you know, what's really interesting is I'm going to have a lot of influence on this, but my name will never be in the press. And it was this idea that I get to be an alchemist inside this and impact it. And so I think that that is what we're being called to on a daily basis. I think that is our moral dilemma, is what are those choices in the moment? Because I think we can get so overwhelmed with the big stuff that we don't pay attention somebody much wiser than me said it, and it was so beautiful, it rocked me, is that all of the big things are made up of small things. They're made up of daily choices, daily practices. And so how do we shift the patterns that we take into the patient room? Mm -hmm. I think that is the opportunity, invite, dilemma, I think that's what's before us. I really uh, resonate with that, Tom, on so many levels. You know, when you say all of the big things are 
made up of the small things. I kind of connect that back with what you said, Bahar, which is first to heal myself. Mm-hmm. Right. These two concepts are a part of the same larger concept. I feel like a lot of our personal development, meaning us individually over the last couple of years, has been a thousand small steps. And before you know it, you've ended up somewhere completely different, uh, much to your surprise, in a, in a positive way. This reminds me of the time when you and I were talking and I told you, I, I want you to face one of your fears. And one of those fears at that time was you traveling solo. And I feel like you had the courage to do that. And in doing so, a certain series of events came about where you found yourself in a lot of ways. And I feel like the path that you're on into becoming a healer, into finding yourself, and then in the future, touching the lives of other people stemmed from that first to heal myself and all the big things are made of small things. For example, going on a solo trip, facing my fear of doing that. If every day I can face my fears, before you know it, I'm in a completely different space. Before you know it, I've changed the world. Yeah, absolutely. I When I first got here, you said, how you, what, you asked me a question. You said, how do you, who do you want to be? And I said, I want to be this floating orb of healing energy. And I realized recently that when I changed my own being is when I started to see things starting to change around me. And it wasn't until I was fully honest with myself. I was lying to myself for a long time about about how my experiences in life affected me. There were a lot of experiences that I had that actually deeply, deeply hurt me, caused me a lot of pain. But I never was honest with myself about how they affected me. And when I was honest with myself about them, I felt so light. I felt like this unloading. I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I've been lying to myself this whole time. What a heavy energy to carry around. And when you're lying to yourself, the heaviness that you feel, the people around you feel it too. Oh, wow, that's so... Talk about capturing all the great spiritual teachings and the great universal truth. This is the most redemptive thing is the truth. It, it's it's so liberating. <laughs> wow, isn't it? And mm. when I was able to be honest with myself, I was able to be honest with my family about things that I felt like if I told them would hurt them. Wow. Right. With my boyfriend. He allowed me to be so open and honest and vulnerable that I I felt like okay I can I've been honest with myself I could be honest with him and I've never felt so light. Wow. Wow. You'd be surprised how many people you love are willing to love you for everything all that darkness that you feel like you're holding inside you don't need to hold it. You don't need to go out into the world and tell people 
oh, you need to do this and you need to do this to be healthier and you need to do this. People will trust you more when they feel that in you. They're going to be like, well, you don't really give off the kind of energy that you're doing any of the stuff you're telling me to do. <laughs> so I want to be exactly what I want people to, f- to feel. Mm. If you want people Deep. to feel healed, you have to be healed. Mm. Be before you do. Exactly. Mm. And that's not saying that you don't have scars. I have oh, a lot no. of scars. But Proudly. I've like tended to them now. They're healing. They're great. They don't hurt anymore. Sometimes, of course, you get a little bit of, this probably doesn't apply, but phantom pain, you know. Mm-hmm. But for me, I realized that the true change is like from within. And we're constantly trying to give people advice and trying to, trying to change their lives. But without having ever done the work ourselves. So I think that's essentially where I'm headed. And it's, it's the most profound work. It, it seems like 99% of the work is, is yourself. And then the rest, it just follows nicely. It's, it aligns with your vibration. You know, if you're vibrating healing of yourself and, um, just elevating. People feel it. You know, it's one thing to hear you talk. It's an, another thing to be in your physical presence because that's something that you that one cannot fake. One cannot fake one's vibe, no matter how hard you try. And actually, the harder you try, the more fake it becomes. When I talk to certain people and they start telling me certain things, I automatically know they don't actually believe what they're saying. And I think it speaks to living a genuine life if you're not true to yourself, you're not living your own life. You're living in confusion. That, in addition to choosing to do the right thing, deep down you know what the right thing to do is. The question is, are you going to listen to that voice? Deep down, intuitively, you always know what the right thing to do is. And you know when you're doing something wrong. And personally, when I ventured into the darkness, the darkness found me. And it had a hard time letting go. So now I know that I need to stay on the right path, stay on the right course, not because of some arbitrary moral code of conduct, but in a very real sense. If I choose darkness, the darkness will choose me, and it'll change who I am on a very fundamental level. You commented about cheap advice and how it frequently comes from individuals who haven't done anything with the experience on their own, but they love to dish out the advice around it. Um, I would agree. Um, I think advice is cheap. I think helping someone sort of explore the reality of their choices is probably the most powerful thing we can do. Your sister's decision around medical school is a powerful thing. I frequently get calls when people are making big professional decisions. And I always like to remind them, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but what I will help you do is think it through so that you're making a courageous decision about it, not a romantic decision. Mm -hmm. And I think that the best thing that we can do is help people understand, here's what the playing field looks like. Here are the things that 
will help support you being deeply successful, not just superficially successful. And here are the thing, here are the challenges that you will face. And I think challenges are not a bad thing, but I also think that if we don't go in understanding we've got to face these challenges, then we get set up for that more toxic disappointment and we start to feel victimized by it. And it's a thing that then, you know, just sends us a curveball. But I think that I, I was sitting with a very, very dear friend of mine. Um, he's a uh, orthopedic surgeon, lives back east, and one of his kids is really struggling with drugs. And I remember saying to him, I was in the car with him, and I said, you know, it's very possible she won't make it to be 30. It doesn't matter what you do. The reality is she it is her life and she's going to live it and she's going to make decisions. There's certain things you can do. You can encourage, you can love, you can support, you can guide, you can direct. And I think this is the thing, uh, particularly in contemporary society and particularly in the Western world and particularly in the United States that we really struggle with. We struggle with these positions of authority that we don't control other people's decisions. And the fact is, Every single human being was embedded by the divine, by the universe, whoever we want to define, was given full license and full full liberty to live their life and those choices. And I think that that is probably one of the most courageous and one of the most humbling things is that I can help you think this through. I can help you understand what you're facing, and you're going to have to make the decision. And I think that that is something that many of the professions that I've worked with through my decades really struggle with that position. It's a very, it's a, it's a very sacred position to sit with another person as they are needing to make decisions for themselves and not try to take those decisions away from them. Mm. And I think particularly with medicine and the way that you are, and I don't mean the two of you specifically, but the, the royal you, anyone that has been trained to be a leader, uh, to guide, to counsel, to step back and really honor the deep ethic and the morality around that responsibility and it isn't to control another human's life but it's to offer to stand with them as they are facing those decisions because that is the reality each person is going to be responsible for living their life how can we show up stand with them as maybe they face those decisions but realize that we don't control them and I really think in this, as we step into 2023, I think this is going to be a huge opportunity in the way we shift around this and realize that we don't control, we don't dominate, we influence, we partner, we counsel, we love, we hold space. You 
can only love somebody through whatever they're going through. Mm-hmm. It comes back to love, you know. You can't, yeah, you, does, you can't control it? it. You can't do anything, yeah. and nor should you, because it's yeah. it's their life to live. Yeah, uh, all yeah. you can do is be present, love them, understand, just be there for them, and trust that it's going to work out for the best. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. Bring whatever our tech technical offerings are, and then love the rest. Right. right. Bahar, before we send you off into the evening, mm-hmm. this conversation is going to percolate and distill for you a bit. And you're going to reflect on things that you've said, things that you felt, and it's going to bring up more and more things, which I think are going to be quite wonderful and quite delicious. And both anxiety, to perhaps a little bit anxiety provoking, which is a good thing. But I think it's going to raise curiosity and some new points of clarity or insights. I'm going to encourage you to just capture those in any way that makes sense to you, whether, you know, that's do you, if you journal or if you just want to do a voice message, you know, however you want to capture that. But capture those ponderings, capture those percolations, capture those questions capture those concerns. There's a, I'm working on a piece right now and I'm calling it um, sort of the theology of doubt. That's not the title, but I think inside of doubt is actually delicious work. So I would invite you, encourage you, ask you to capture whatever kind of percolates from all of this. And I think that could be some wonderful stuff that could come up in a next conversation with you. For sure. I think that's a really good point. And it it has to be done uh, consciously because, you you know, keeping like a notebook around. Yes. Because the thoughts Um, are fleeting. And you're absolutely right. These things will come to you. And I think they're gifts from the universe almost. Little Mm. points of clarity, little distillations, questions. think they're coming to us and asking us to grab hold of them. Definitely. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming. Bye, Bauer. Thank you for having me. It was was a delight. It was great. Oh, thank you. And I just want to remind you, take that healer heart with you everywhere you go this week. Will do. (laughs) Thank you. So we want to take just a moment and kind of reflect on a few of the uh, uh, really fundamental threads that ran through our conversation with Bahar. I uh, am really kind of sitting in a pretty heartfelt and very mentally awake space as I've listen to her really walk us through some very compelling things that are going on. One of the things for you is, as our listeners uh, want to remind you that this particular series that you're listening to, we're interviewing physicians that have been through a rigorous medical school training and an equally rigorous residency. And I don't want you to get lost specifically just in their profession but every there's so many people out here that are in what we would call high-impact professions. And one of the things that we are grabbing a hold of is uh, dynamics that are going that have been culturally accepted and we would describe as inter, uh, institutional practices and protocols that are very outdated 
and in fact have huge repercussions and impact many ways the ability for people to show up and 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 practice their profession not just the technicalities and the science side of it but the deeper aspects that bring humanity and the art form of their discipline so that is a, a core theme that we're sort of wanting to expose the deeper elements in this that all of us can really take away is the deeper personal journey as we navigate sort of the challenges that we all face just in this human journey and how we find the courage to step into the transformative and healing process. One of the things that she really talked about was how she took that internal pain and sort of that deeper examination, her beliefs, her expectations, and she trusted herself enough to go external with it. And, what, and without complicating it and getting melodramatic or overly clinical and intellectual with it, the core theme in that that she really described for us was how she trusted herself to go external and really share her experience. It wasn't about so much sharing the pain, but she really trusted herself to pull her experience out. And what she discovered was moving from scarcity when we hold that journey internal and she trusted herself to go external with it and it turned into abundance for her. And all of a sudden, something that was painful actually started to become robust and she started to feel joy in it. Her belief system started to shift. Her conversations with the outside world and her intimate relationships started to shift. And so the deeper thread that runs through that was the trust to take the pain, move external with it, and to start having conversations around her experience. The deep narrative in this, and we're going to be weaving this constantly through all of the work that we're doing, we're on our own personal journeys with it, is that how do we continue to exercise the muscle of courage? This is a word that has been... Um, commoditized and I think um, has taken on a level of genericness. But when we hear the word courage, we actually need to pause for a moment and understand the deeper meaning around that. Courage isn't the absence of fear. Courage is the capacity and the intention to move in the face of fear. So as you're moving forward in your daily lives do not confuse yourself that I need to feel no fear. It's trusting myself in the God-given gift for my capacity to move in the face of fear. One of the things that Bahar talked about, and to me this is a huge gift and it's something that we will continue to explore, is creating enough space for yourself in the moment to get clear around your intentions. Our contemporary lives are so driven by this fast pace and we get so seduced into this idea around efficiency and that we don't have time for things. But I will challenge that. We have brief moments throughout our day to pause and get clear and intentional around what our next step is going to be. 
So one of the things that we really want to send you off, particularly from this conversation today, is to just start playing. No judgment, uh, no justification around it, but just to start to play and exercise this idea of what are my intentions in this moment? What outcome would I like to create? What impact would I like to have? How would I like this person to walk away? These are very brief moments where we can impact with that level of clarity and intention. Want to close out with one of the things that came up in our conversation with Bahar today. Uh, Kiev really stepped into an evocative space addressing gender, uh, sexism. We've seen it across industry. We touched briefly on the impact that women experience uh, inside of medicine. This is not exclusive to medicine. This cuts across industries. And this is going to be a topic that we're going to delve into deeply. Want to acknowledge the fact that our conversation with Bahar was so rich and so deep. We intend to have her back to continue pulling on some of the threads that have come up and specifically on this one around women's role in the professions.